0: welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts and Evergreen Podcasts Network. I'm the titular Sean.
1: And I'm the very titular Carrie.
0: It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre, and tries to find an answer. Uh, Caroline, this is part two, and listener, this is part two. You should go back and listen to part one, unless you are fond of jumping into (laughs) stories right in the middle, which, hey, I'm not going to judge you.
1: I think I will.
0: Uh, This week we are talking (laughs) about Jack
2: the Ripper, part two.
1: Mm -hmm. So let's recap our discussion from last week. We began with some backstory on the Whitechapel area of London, as well as the beginning of the Jack the Ripper murders. As we mentioned, at the time the murders began in 1888... London was very much divided along class lines, with the upper classes residing in or close to central London, and the lower working classes being especially concentrated in the East End, including the crime and poverty-ridden district of Whitechapel. So it's here that Jack the Ripper made his first appearances, murdering two sex workers, Mary Nichols and Annie Chapman, between late August and mid-September of 1888. And not just murdering, either. Both women were ripped apart by someone who appeared to have some anatomical knowledge, according to some doctors.
0: And Yeah, yeah, Ripper is not just a colorful name. Uh,
1: And in the latter murder, the killer left with Chapman's uterus in tow. So now Scotland Yard is getting involved, local police are absolutely baffled, and those living in Whitechapel are quickly working their way up to a frenzy of fear and blame with some Jewish refu- refugees and immigrants being subjected to hate crimes and persecution because of belief in their involvement with the crimes.
2: Because of a little apron.
1: That's part of it, yes. For this episode, along with the books that I mentioned last up, I also want to give a special shout-out to jack-the-ripper.org. Um, a clever name, by the way. <laughs> yeah. It's a great resource that I used in this series. It gives a very good timeline of events, which is critical for a story like this. So definitely check it out if you're somehow looking for some more details.
0: Now, Carrie, uh, similar to how... People who dedicate their lives to studying UFOs are ufologists. Uh, there is a whole subculture, <clears throat> excuse me, subculture <laughs> of ripperologists out there, aren't there?
1: Yes, and I mention it a little bit later, but it's basically, yeah, a subgenre of true crime interest, just like ufology is a subgenre of like paranormal stuff. interest, I guess. Yeah. And they consider themselves ripperologists, and that's their pet case, and they love to research it.
0: I thought you were going to say pet kink.
1: <laughs> well, who
0: knows? Little column A, little column B. Anyway.
1: Before we begin, if anything, this episode has even gorier details in it than the last. So if that's something you might not be able to handle, well, just have your fast forward finger
0: ready. Um, okay. Okay, I don't like the way you said finger, if I can be honest. Sorry. (laughs) Let's move on.
1: Uh, It was three F's in a row, so I was trying not to mumble it. Right after the second of the canonical five murders, that of Annie Chapman, a man named George Lusk, along with several other local businessmen, would found the Mile End Vigilance Committee on September 10th, 1888 with the hopes of assisting the police in catching the murderer.
0: Now, has Mr. Lusk showed up in our story uh, before? Was he the guy who found any of the victims? or?
1: No, I don't believe so. He's just uh, a rabble rouser, I guess. Also known as the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee, the group posted numerous flyers around the district appealing for information about the murders. And Lusk and the committee's treasurer, Joseph Ahrens, wrote a letter to the Daily Telegraph addressed to the then Home Secretary, Henry Matthews, stating that the offer of a substantial reward from the government would convince the poor and humble residents of our East End that the government authorities are as much anxious to avenge the blood of these unfortunate women as they were the assassination of Lord Cavendish and Mr. Burke.
0: It's strange because their murderers were found, yeah, and these women's never was. Well.
1: <laughs> on the day of September 27th, 1888, the Central News Agency received a letter, letter postmarked September 25th and addressed to... The Boss. Not Bruce Springsteen. This is going
0: right to the top.
1: (laughs) The letter inside the envelope was two pages long, written in red ink, and contained several spelling errors. Sean, would you mind reading the contents of the letter for our listeners?
0: Oh, uh, certainly. Hold on just a second. Oh,
2: boy. Dear Boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me. But they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. That joke about leather apron gave me real fits. I am down (laughs) on whores and I shan't quit ripping them till I do get buckled. Groundwork the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. You will soon hear of me with me funny little games. Hilarious. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with. But it went thick like glue and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. Ha! Ha! Hmm. The next job I do, I shall clip the lady's ears off and send to the police officers, just for jolly, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back till I do a bit more work than give it out straight. My knife's so nice and sharp, i want to get to work right away if I get the chance. Good luck. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Uh, don't mind me giving the trade name. <laughs> P.S. Wasn't good enough to post this before I got all the red ink off my hands, curse it. No luck yet. They say I'm a doctor now. (laughs) Ha ha! Saucy Jackie! He didn't
1: write Saucy Jackie at the end, but yes, he did write ha ha a couple times, which is like him writing LOL in there. It's very strange. (laughs) Ha ha! Due to its heading, this missive would become notoriously known as the Dear Boss Letter. Initially, this letter was considered to be just another hoax letter purporting to be from the murderer. However, a later clue within the murder of Catherine Eddowes a few days later seemed to give credence to the author's promise in the letter to clip the lady's ears off. Oh. It was forwarded to Scotland Yard on September 29th and eventually published on October 1st, uh, leading to its being republished in both national and international papers. This would mark the birth of the name Jack the Ripper and the true media frenzy surrounding the case.
0: And immediately obviously calls to mind several modern cases that attracted a media frenzy like um, BTK, mm-hmm. who wrote poems and uh, Zodiac letters. Zodiac is the one Zodiac, that really reminds
1: me, yeah. And he, had, he gave himself that name too. So yeah, sa-
0: Saucy Jackie wasn't as good with a code, huh?
1: No, apparently not. It is in this heady atmosphere that the notorious double event occurred on Sunday, September 30th, 1888. At around 1245 a.m. the early morning of September 30th, a man named Israel Schwartz was walking home along Burner Street in Whitechapel when he saw a man attack a woman in the gateway to Dutfield's Yard. Which was a narrow yard situated between number 40 and
0: number 42 Burner Street. Boy, Israel Schwartz must have had a terrible time living in this neighborhood.
1: Uh, even at this point, and we'll get there in a second. Schwartz later described this man as being about five feet five inches tall, around 30 years old, with dark hair, a fair complexion, a small brown mustache, broad shoulders, and the appearance of slight intoxication. Paul F. Tompkins,
0: <laughs> the comedian?
1: Yeah. As Schwartz looked on, the man tried to pull the woman into the street, but then spun her around and threw her onto the footway where the woman screamed out three times. Schwartz decided not to get involved since, unfortunately, domestic violence was likely a common sight in Whitechapel. And uh, this is basically what he thought the situation was, just a squabble between two lovers.
2: Well, there they are. Oh, he's just beating on the lady, that's all.
1: (laughs) I'll leave him to it. He crossed over the road and he noticed a man smoking a pipe in the doorway of a beer shop, who Schwartz described as being around 35 years old, 5 feet 11 inches tall, having a fresh complexion, light brown hair, a brown mustache, and a dark overcoat with an old black hard
0: felt hat. How are we defining fresh complexion?
1: I don't know. There's a lot of talk about fair complexions and fresh complexions. I'm going to say he probably... He looked like, uh, you know, on those Neutrogena commercials where they're just like splashing the wash, just very
0: fresh. It just seems similar to fair in that case. <laughs>
1: I guess. Well, fair, I think, means lighter skin.
0: Yeah, but you just said fresh.
1: Well, fresh, fresh and fair. It was then that the man attacking the woman who Schwartz had just avoided looked up and shouted "Lipsky!" Lipsky! At uh, him and the pipe smoking man in that general direction. If you recall from last episode, we mentioned how the usage of Lipsky was meant to be kind of a racial
0: epithet. Oh, because the guy had poisoned that lady.
1: Yeah, he was a Jewish man who had been hanged for murder. So perhaps, unlike the suspicion that many had in this time that the killer was a Jewish person, because um, the racist belief that they didn't think a fellow Englishman could commit such a horrific crime... It seems maybe that the attacker themselves had racist beliefs against Jewish people, at the very least enough to call a suspected Jewish man, Israel Schwartz, the name of a famous Jewish murderer. According to Schwartz, at this point, the man in the doorway began to follow him. And fearing for his own safety, Schwartz ran off, losing his pursuer uh, by the time he reached the nearby railway arch.
0: It was fresh complexion coming after him?
1: Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. It is believed that in witnessing the violent act, Schwartz had also witnessed the early stages of the first murder of the night, though there is uncertainty as to who the pipe-smoking man was and why he would have given Schwartz chase. Some think this man may have been a ripper accomplice, but it seems more likely that he was just another sketchy figure lurking around Whitechapel.
0: Just waiting for someone to yell at a Jewish guy he could go beat on.
1: There were plenty of people doing that exact thing, so maybe wrong place, wrong time. At 1 a.m., another man, Louis Diemschutz, was heading home from a day spent hawking jewelry at Westerhill Market. Diemschutz was the steward of the International Working Men's Educational Club, also known as the Jewish Socialist Club.
0: Oh, they had to be uh, popular in town.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, and this club overlooked Dutfield's Yard, so, you know, right over this, the uh, area and Diemschitz was directing his pony and cart into the yard. The pony, instead of where going where he had intended it to, shied left and stopped. Diemschitz went to look into the yard to see what could have bothered his pony and spotted a bundle in the darkness.
0: Uh, listen, and this is this is no casting no aspersions on the victim, obviously. Um, if your pony's afraid of just a dead lady, you, you gotta get a new pony, right?
1: I don't know if it's afraid, but maybe he was trying to, like, park right there and the pony's like i can't go any further there's something here
0: the backup uh, cameras beeping <laughs> yeah
1: he tried to lift the bundle with his whip um but it was too heavy and upon lighting a match for visibility deemschutz realized that the bundle was the body of a woman lying on the ground <gasps>
2: mm-hmm.
1: police would later he's d-
2: like it's, this is the result of a domestic he just <laughs> makes the same assumption the earlier guy did
1: a lot of them do in this story Police later determined that this woman was Elizabeth Stride, but as of this point, she's a Jane Doe. Diemschutz ran into the Jewish Socialist Club to fetch a candle and some other witnesses, and the group returned to see that the woman's throat had been slashed by a great gash two inches wide. However, she had not been mutilated in any other way, unlike in the first two Ripper murders, where the killer took some time to um, play with
0: the bodies. Okay, but we are going to get to why we think this is part of the series? Yes. Okay.
1: The group ran from the yard at that point and split up to try and find a police constable. With Dean Schitz and another man heading along Fairclose Street shouting, Murder! And, police! hmm They soon found P.C. Edward Spooner, who returned with them to Dutfield's yard. Spooner lifted the woman's chin and found it to be slightly warm, so she's fresh. He saw the gash in the blood and also noticed that she was holding a piece of paper in her right hand, which later turned out to be a packet of breath fresheners. And I'm pretty sure that was probably a common item for sex workers to use at the time.
0: She just get a little packet of Mentos in her hand?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure what they are, but it's a breath freshener.
0: It's not much of a weapon.
1: (laughs) I don't think it was a weapon. I think she was getting ready to get down to business.
0: With a john. I know, but we had a guy, you know, she was a, guy, the, a guy starting to beat on her when, when that first guy well,
1: saw her. Yeah, but she probably already had the fresheners in her hand at that point.
0: She's really holding tight to those mints. Well,
1: you know. More police arrived soon after, and Dr. Frederick William Blackwell was summoned to the scene. He pronounced the woman dead at 1.16 a.m. and surmised that she had been killed between 20 and 30 minutes previous by the cut to the throat which would have bled her out within about 90 seconds.
0: Can you remind me, because it's been a week, uh, were the first two victims' uh, throats
1: slashed? Their throats were cut, but they were further mutilated, and she was not. Dutfield's yard was then closed to the public, and those gathered there were questioned and examined, as well as some nearby residents, and the body was moved to St. George's Mortuary at 4.30 a.m., and at 5 o'clock, P.C. Albert Collins washed the
2: blood away from the yard. Classic. Let's what, let's make sure there's no more evidence around here. Yeah. We wouldn't want it to, uh... I mean, wh- why are you cleaning it up? Again,
0: isn't the whole place, like, covered in shit?
1: <clears throat> I, I don't know. I don't know. They didn't want it to become a spectacle. The police would hypothesize that Deemschitz had likely interrupted the killer with, you know, the fact that there was no further mutilation and that the mysterious figure could have even then uh, still been in the yard when Deemschutz arrived, kind of hiding away in the shadows. And then the minutes that Deemschitz ran into the club could have given him time to escape and a short while later, he would claim his next victim.
0: Wow. Uh, so maybe that first guy wasn't was just seeing a lover's quarrel?
1: No, they think that timing-wise that was probably Jack
0: the Ripper. Oh, I didn't realize he was that close before. Mhm. Uh, Schütz.
1: He was like across the street. We'll go into the second murder on September 30th first in the interest of flow and then we're going to double back to give more details on the victims. Flow from Progressive? I don't know, blood flow more like. So, okay, let's let's go back a bit. Um The first body has been found. It's just after 1 a.m. There's a panic rising due to this body, and somehow the killer would kill again that night and escape again.
2: The double event.
1: At 1.30 a.m., police constable Watkins of the city police was walking his beat near Mitre Square, which was situated just inside the city of London's eastern boundary. He passed the southeast entrance of the square down the long, narrow church passage, which led onto Duke Street. His beat brought him through Mitre Square every 12 to 14 minutes, which seems extremely specific, but there it is.
0: Especially given what I imagine watch technology of the yeah. day was.
1: Uh, Watkins had his lantern on and fixed to his belt and was quite insistent later that the square had been very deserted and quiet when he passed by. He left and turned right toward Aldgate to repeat his movements. So this part of his beat is done, and then in, in, I don't know, 13 minutes, he'll be back. Five minutes after Watkins left, three men, men—Henry, Harry Harris, Joseph Levy, and Joseph Lewendy, left the Imperial Club on Duke Street and passed a man and a woman talking quietly at the junction of Duke Street and Church Passage, which is where P.C. Watkins had just walked by. The woman had her back to the men, but Luendi would later state with certainty that she was Catherine Eddowes, who would become the knight's second victim, and the Ripper's fourth in total. Luendi also saw the man's face and said that he had the appearance of a sailor. Again, I don't really know what comprises this assumption.
0: Um, I think it's gigantic biceps, <laughs> very thin forearms. Um, like an anchor, anchor tattoo. tattoo. Yeah,
2: and he, and he talks like that.
0: I can't he do a Popeye, spinach. I guess.
1: Yeah, he loves spinach. <laughs> uh, he said the man looked around 30 years old, five foot nine inches, medium build with a fair complexion and a oh. small fair colored mustache.
0: Not fresh, this guy.
1: Fair, now very he, fair. Now
0: when he says fair complexion, for some reason, I think they smell bad. What? Because he didn't say they were fresh.
1: No, no, I think fair means pale or light skin. No, I know it does. No, I know, but I think that's what he means. Anyway, the man sported a reddish neckerchief tied in a knot, wore a pepper and salt colored loose fitting jacket. Yeah, how many
0: merit badges did he have?
1: <laughs> I don't know. And he had on a gray peaked cloth cap. Uh, Luendi paid the couple little attention as they passed, not knowing that he would be one of the few surviving people to likely have seen the face of Jack the Ripper.
0: I would like neckerchiefs to make a a comeback. I would uh, prefer throwing on my old uh, neckerchief to a tie, I think.
1: Okay. That's very fancy of you. So so they walk by around 1.35 a.m. At 1.44 a.m., P.C. Watkins returned once again on his beat to Miter Square and here found a woman's body lying in a pool of blood in the dark southwest corner of the square.
0: Wow. So this is, I mean...
1: There's been 10 minutes since the three
0: guys walked by. Yeah, and they saw a man and a woman talking quietly. Yes.
1: Now, the woman, who would later be identified as Edo's, had been the victim of a horrific attack. Her throat had been cut almost through to the spine. Her abdomen had been ripped open and mutilated. Strange V-shaped incisions pointing upwards toward her eyes had been carved into her cheeks. Her eyes and earlobes had been cut through and the tip of her nose had been sliced off.
0: Jeez, did he mutilate the last one's face like this?
1: He didn't mutilate her at all.
0: No, I'm sorry, uh, uh, the second victim.
1: Not that much, no. A portion of her ear was found detached at the scene. Half of her uterus and her left kidney had been taken by the killer, along with a cutaway portion of the apron she had been wearing.
2: And if I can quote, The next job I do, I shall clip the lady's ears off Mm -hmm. and send to the police officers just for jolly, wouldn't you?
1: Very astute, Sean. And keep in mind, that letter where he wrote that was postmarked the 25th of September. This is September 30th, and that letter had not been published yet. Very interesting.
0: He did tell him to hold it back. Yep.
1: P.C. Watkins, understandably horrified at the sight, immediately raised the alarm and constables swarmed to Mitre Square from all directions. Everyone was stunned by how this could have all taken place within the span of 10 to 15 minutes between Watkins passing by this area on his beat the first time, the guys passing by, and then Watkins coming back around at 1.44 a.m.
0: I mean, it just does seem like a lot to do to a person in 10 minutes.
1: Sure does. There had even been a man named George Morris, a retired police officer who was working as a night watchman in the warehouse directly opposite the murder site, uh, who stated his complete bafflement as to how this murder could have taken place so close to him without his hearing or seeing anything suspicious as written in the illustrated police news quote morris could hear the footsteps of the policeman as he passed on his beat every quarter of an hour so that it appeared impossible that the woman could have uttered any sound without his detecting it it was only on the night he, that it was only on the night that he remarked to some policeman that he wished the butcher would come around mitre square and he would give him a doing yet the butcher had come and he was perfectly ignorant of it so well, it's that's like a read from the newspaper yeah
0: really <laughs> The library is open.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, maybe, George, it's time to embrace retirement completely, because I'm not sure this night watchman thing is your bag, baby.
0: Yeah, it's uh, what it was. couldn't have been more than half a block away that was this right whole, there. whole was murder right took there. place.
1: Yeah. The killer, in making his escape, must have also passed three city detectives who were orchestrating plain clothes patrols in the East End at the very time of Edeus' death. Somehow, none of the men noticed anyone going by, and so Saucy Jack made his way into the East End post-murder undetected. The police soon fanned out onto the surrounding streets in in an attempt to catch the evasive killer, but all that would be found was the missing piece of Catherine Eddowes's apron, discovered dropped in a nearby doorway on Goulston Street (laughs) by PC Long. The apron was covered with blood and, um, feces with marks seeming to signify that the blade of a knife had been wiped on it.
2: Uh,
0: But whence the feces? I
1: heard, I I didn't read this specific thing, but I heard in another um, podcast that many sex workers of the time would be wearing these aprons and they'd be out at all hours and um, they'd be kind of cleaning themselves up with these aprons. Uh, So...
2: So it's
0: just wearable toilet paper? Like reusable toilet paper?
1: Perhaps she had used it as a a kind of cleaning device after going to the bathroom.
0: I don't think I'm getting close enough to one of these women to patronize them.
1: Well, thank you, Sean. Thank you for letting me know. Uh, So this would be the only real clue that Jack the Ripper would ever kind of leave behind. It sort of revealed the route he likely took as he absconded from Mitre Square, uh, since this was dropped a while away, suggesting he was likely heading to a home in the East End. Now, some have questioned how the Ripper would not have been noticed after two murders by passersby. You know, wouldn't he be covered with blood? And shit, apparently. Well, at least blood. But detectives and doctors agreed that he may not have been drenched um, depending on how careful he was, maybe he had... <laughs> how careful? Well, if he had a jacket previously, took it off for the murder or the at least the mutilation, and then put it back on after, he would kind of cover up any blood stains on his shirt.
0: Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible, he turns the jacket inside out, pulls his hat <laughs> down.
1: No, I could see him coming up behind a woman, slashing her throat, so kind of avoiding that blood if he's behind her. And then she's dead on the ground. He uh, takes off his jacket, gets to work, does the mutilation, might get some blood on his shirt or whatever, but then puts the jacket, which doesn't have any blood on it, back on, buttons it up, and walks away. Thank you for a lovely (laughs) evening. (laughs) As the police headed up Goulston Street (laughs) to continue searching after the apron discovery, P.C. Long found a scrawled chalk graffiti message on the wall above the apron. The message read,
2: The Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing!
1: Yes, the Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing.
2: The Jews are the men that will not be blamed for
1: nothing! Jews here was spelled as J-U-W-E-S. As another police officer arrived on the scene, P.C. Long asked him to guard the building as he took the apron to the police station for inspection.
0: Sort of a um, 19th century, uh, they're going to take our jobs. That's how I well, interpret it.
1: Oh, they've, they've been like this in Whitechapel at this point about Jewish people, for sure. Yeah,
0: yeah but, but that's how I interpret that sentence, right? That's like a, they're going to take our job.
1: Yeah. Back in the square, uh, Dr. George Willie. oh, sorry. Back in the square, Dr. George William Sicara was determining that Edwards' death was instantaneous due to the cut on her throat, and was also interestingly of the opinion that the killer possessed only basic knowledge of anatomy.
0: Oh, not a, like, expert surgeon or whatever?
1: And the body was then moved to Golden Lane Mortuary. So let's talk about the Jews are the men who will not be blamed for nothing. The
2: Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing.
1: The graffiti message was a point of conflict for the city police and the Metropolitan Police gathering on Gulston Street. Mm. As you mentioned, Sean, it clearly seemed to be another bit of anti-Semitic racism. The message seemed to be in a kind of Cockney doublespeak, which was a slang version of the British language at the time um, that employed use of double negatives. Our author Martin Fido of The Crimes, Detection, and Death of Jack the Ripper has noted that the standard English version of the message might read something like,
2: The Jews are a who will not be blamed
1: for nothing. No. Jews will not take responsibility for anything. Again, please don't cut that out of this podcast. I don't believe that.
2: Yeah, just
0: isolate it <laughs> yes. for when you run for president.
1: And he thought that this may have been written by someone who believed they had been wronged by one of the many Jewish merchants in the area. The Jews' misspelling, J-U-W-E-S, may also have been part of a local dialect,
0: unless it was just plain misspelling. You know, I don't think the person who wrote this had, like, a lot of book learning.
1: Yes, and there's also no way of knowing whether that message had been written before the apron piece had been dropped there, just by some random person who hated Jewish people.
0: Right, it wasn't even at the site of the murder, right? It was just nearby and where her apron was found?
1: It was right above where the apron was found, yes. The city police were adamant that the message should be photographed as part of the investigation, with photography being a relatively new element in police work at the time. The Metropolitan Police, however, realized that that would entail waiting until the light of morning to take the photograph, by which time those in the public would be passing by and therefore would see the message.
2: Hose it away. Hose it away with the blood. (laughs)
1: Yeah, there would be no way to conceal this message from locals, so the Metropolitan Police were concerned a riot would begin upon people seeing it.
2: Hey, they won't be blamed for (laughs) nothing, will they? And
1: that would be along with the news of two new murders, so it would be kind of become like a riot at those of Jewish persuasion. At least that was the fear. Sir Charles Warren, who had the final say as the head of the Metropolitan Police, arrived at the scene between 5 and 5.30 a.m., and decided that leaving the message up would lead to crimes against innocent Jews, and ordered it be erased without any photograph taken. Now this was a surprisingly sympathetic thing for an old-timey police guy to do in defense of innocent Jewish people, but of course it eliminates one of the few things in the Jack the Ripper case that could have been documented as a clue. However, many then and still believe that the message had nothing to do with the murders and was not written by the Ripper, but was just a coincidental piece of hateful graffiti that happened to be at the spot where the Ripper discarded the apron.
0: Uh, That is probably what I I, I would guess.
1: I I think the same thing, yeah.
0: Um, But does it play into um, From Hell? We we shall see in my episode. I'm sure
1: it's going to play into some conspiracies. I'm afraid of what those conspiracies are. So now with both of the bodies at the mortuary for identification, let's Tarantino it and go back to the beginning uh, to tell these women's stories.
2: The only boy who could ever
1: reach me.
0: One of my- go, go ahead. I'm giving you a little Tarantino soundtrack.
1: The first victim of, of the early hours of September 30th, Elizabeth Stride, spent her last afternoon clearing rooms at the lodging house at 32 Flower and Dean Street, where she'd been living on and off for about six years. Stride, known as Long Liz due to I guess her height, though she was only between five foot two and five foot five, which means I <laughs> guess I would be referred to as Long Carrie at the time. Well you are you're
0: almost frighteningly tall. <laughs> no question. I'm a I'm a towering five two. I've always been so intimidated by you.
1: <laughs> Elizabeth was forty four years old at the time of her death. She had been born Elisabeth Gustav's daughter in Sweden and had relocated to London in 1866. She married ship's carpenter John Thomas Stride in 1869, but by 1874 the couple's marriage had begun to deteriorate, perhaps due to the fact that Stride was 20 years uh, 22 years older than her. Huh. So they probably didn't have a lot to relate on. <laughs> Uh, they didn't have any children, and Elizabeth began to take residence well, in. The
0: at, at this time, didn't everyone just have like the their their crushing poverty and the fact that I they mean, were filthy? Really yeah, t- sure, t- they could relate
1: on that. <laughs> relate them. Uh, Elizabeth eventually began to take residence in the calming lodging houses on Flower and Dean Street sometime around 1882, and in 1884, John Stride died of tuberculosis. Interestingly, uh, and this is just a random little tidbit, in the years following John's death, Elizabeth apparently told several people that her husband and two of her nine children, again, she had no children, had drowned in the 1878 sinking of the Princess Alice in the River Thames. Uh, but this seems to just be a flight of fancy or maybe an attempt to evoke sympathy from people.
2: Um,
0: yeah, yeah <laughs> I don't know. A weird
1: I... story. I don't know.
0: Listen, we've established where where she's living. Um, She's got to tell people whatever she can to get by. Yeah.
1: From 1885 until her death, she occasionally lived with dock laborer Michael Kidney, who lived on Devonshire Street. The couple apparently had a tumultuous relationship and were very on again, off again. At some point, she began using sex work to earn money along with her house cleaning and sewing ventures. And after an argument on September 26th, 1888, Stride and Kidney once again separated, and she returned to 32 Flower and Dean Street to live. At 6.30 p.m. on September 29th, Stride and friend Elizabeth Tanner visited the Queen's Head Pub on Commercial Street before Stride left to return to her lodging house alone. She didn't stay home long, though, and after freshening up, she left the house around 7.30 p.m. How do we know that? there were people living there, so they saw her at the house. Um, The next sighting is around 11 p.m., and Stride was seen standing with another man in the doorway of the Bricklayer's Arms Pub.
2: Oh, I
0: love these pub names.
1: Yes, and that's on Settle Street. She was seen by two men. The men told the inquest later that the man with Stride had been hugging and kissing her, which surprised them. They stated, quote, he was hugging and kissing her, and uh, as he seemed a respectably dressed man, we were rather astonished at the way he was going on with the woman. So, that was interesting.
2: Hugging and kissing her, usually we just uh, stick them in the butt. <laughs> yeah. in Sorry, b- <laughs>
0: they call it a boot, I believe.
1: Ugh. In a bit of dark humor, one of the men yelled to the pair, Watch out, that's Leather Apron getting around you.
2: Uh, is that uh, dead old Saucy Jackie getting around you there, love?
1: Yeah, it's, it's classic dark humor. The couple hurried off after this, seemingly embarrassed. Stride was soon after seen on Burner Street with several witnesses over the next hour spotting her in the company of a man.
0: Probably a different man.
1: Uh, most likely,
0: they these were, are. I would have yeah. to imagine these are five-minute yes. encounters at best.
1: One witness was William Marshall, who lived at 64 Burner Street. Marshall was standing outside of his home around 11.45 p.m. when he noticed a man and a woman outside number 63. The pair seemed sober, and they were kissing.
0: Boy, I, this blows everything out of the water that I know about sex work from Julia Roberts' movies.
1: Just... Just erase anything you know about sex work from Julia Roberts movies. That's not going to be factual. Okay. There's just a lot of kissing. (laughs) I thought she didn't kiss. That's what I'm saying. Interesting. Oh, yes. Okay. Marshall described the man as being middle-aged and stout and had the appearance of a clerk. I don't know why.
0: Um... The people's descriptions are so strange. It's it's a, it's a nice window into you know, when, when you read like uh, the Iliad and they talk about the the it, wine red sea and you're like, what?
1: It's yeah, it's interesting how some people
0: view the world. D- yes,
1: yes, the things that they notice. Uh, the man was described as being around five foot six inches tall, clean shaven, and respectably dressed. He wore a small black cutaway coat, dark trousers, and a round cap with a small sailor like peak. Marshall heard the man remark, you would say anything but your prayers,
0: which uh, I think was like, um, like a, like, like a joke, like dirty talk. That's like fun. Dirty talk. Yeah. Like, like
1: you'd say anything except praying. Like you're, you're such a slut. You would yes, say anything. She
2: just said like, oh, I'm all right. Saucy talk.
1: <laughs> yes. Uh, the couple then moved away toward Dutfield's yard. Another of the witnesses was P.C. William Smith, who saw a man and a woman, who he identified as Stride later on, standing in the gateway of Dutfield's Yard at 1230
0: a.m. Oh, I think that's Long Liz over there, but she's obscured by that fence. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Old Long Liz.
1: Yes. So since Dutfield's Yard was where Stride's body was found, this sighting could have possibly been one of the Ripper. Smith stated that the man was approximately 28 years old with a dark complexion and a small dark mustache. He was around 5 foot 7 inches tall, had on a dark overcoat, a hard felt deerstalker, dark hat, and ARC clothing, but I'm not sure what that is. I looked it up. There are a few brands named ARC, but I don't know what an ARC clothing is thing is
0: well i would have to imagine it's clothing for being on an arc which i think is like <laughs> a like long linen. robe yeah a, and like a crooked Wool. staff
1: yeah maybe that's it at he's just ar-
0: like like uh noah
1: yes at around 12 15 a.m a man named morris eagle a member of the jewish socialist club left the area to walk his young lady home
0: hey these guys are fans of noah
1: mm-hmm Returning to the club around 1235, Eagle found the front door locked, so he went through the gates into Dutfield's yard and entered the club via its back door. He here noticed something on the ground by the gates as he passed through, but as the yard was pitch black at the time, he couldn't see what it was through... He couldn't see what it was, though he stated he would have noticed if a man and a woman had been in the yard. And then, right after this, was the sighting by... Israel Schwartz that we mentioned. Oh, okay. Catherine Eddowes was the second victim of the night, and as we noted, unfortunately, she was the more mutilated one.
0: So you're going on the record saying you you wish that Elizabeth Stride had been more mutilated.
1: No, I just unfortunately for her, she had to be mutilated. Okay,
0: just just trying to just trying to catch you on the tough questions here, Care.
1: At the time of her death, Eddowes was 46 years old. In her early 20s, she got together with army pensioner Thomas Conway, and though she claimed they were married, it seemed that they probably weren't
0: legally. Um, didn't we say something in the first episode about how, like, if people just lived together for, like, a couple of years in this time and place, they would just talk about, they would just say they were married?
1: Yeah, it's kind of a common law situation.
0: Am I thinking of a different conversation, or did, would, did we talk about that last we week? I don't think we did,
1: but it's correct. Okay. Okay. <laughs> They had three children, but separated in 1880 due to Catherine's alcoholism. She then became involved with Irish porter John Kelly until her death. On September 27th, Eddowes casually told the superintendent of the Shoe Lane Casual Ward that she had come to the area to claim the reward being offered for the capture of the Whitechapel murderer, adding, I think I know him.
2: Just casual.
1: Mm-hmm. He told her to be careful, or she'd end up murdered herself, to which she allegedly replied, Oh, no fear of that. Why? Just for irony, I assume. It's unclear whether Catherine was working as a prostitute. John Kelly was adamant that she had never done sex work to earn money throughout their seven-year relationship, though, of course, you know, there could be denial at play, I'm not sure.
0: Or just maybe work she wasn't telling him about. Yeah.
1: On September 29th, she told Kelly that she was going to see her married daughter to borrow some money. However, though she never made it to her daughter's home, she had somehow made enough money by later that day to get rip-roaring drunk.
0: Well, uh, I think she might have been doing a little work on the side.
1: Mm -hmm. Thanks to this drunkenness, Catherine was arrested on the night of September 29th for causing a drunken disturbance on Aldgate High Street. It seems that she had been entertaining a crowd of onlurkers with a drunken imitation of a fire engine.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Who wants to see where I keep me siren?
1: Ugh. After taking a bow, she laid down on the pavement and promptly went to sleep.
0: I like the cut kind of Catherine's jib.
1: <laughs> P.C. Robinson discovered her and with assistance from a colleague, carried her to Bishopsgate Police Station.
0: Now, how can you pick someone up off of the sidewalk and say they're causing a disturbance. She's unconscious. I don't know.
1: When asked for her name, Catherine replied, "Nothing." Nothing. She was placed in a cell.
2: In Sorry, go ahead.
1: She was placed in a cell to sober up and slept through until twelve fifteen a.m. When city gaoler P.C. George Hut,
0: I think they do say they say jailer.
1: Whatever it's spelled gaoler. Uh, he found her singing softly. And this gaoler, or jailer, is a person in charge of a prison, by the way.
0: Yeah, they used to spell jail, G-A-O-L.
1: Yeah. At around 12.30, Edo's asked Hutt when she might be allowed to leave, and... And, she,
2: and Hutt said, Duwonka Solo.
1: I hate you so much. And at 12.55, Hutt took her from her cell and let her go. When he asked her name and address for the release papers, she told him it was Mary Ann Kelly of Six, 6 Fashion Street.
0: Fashion Street? I'm sure there was a Fashion Street. Yeah, but it sounds, um, I don't know, it seems out of place next to like uh, Spittlefields. Yes.
1: So this uh, alias that she gave would be an interesting bit of information later on. And we'll get to that. But uh, People familiar interest- with
0: this case already. Yes. Uh, their ears pricked right up.
1: Mm-hmm. As Catherine left the station, Hutt asked her to shut the door behind her. All right, good night, old cock, was her reply.
0: Classic. (laughs) That's what I call all my friends, is old cock. It's very cheeky. Good night, old
1: cock. She turned left and headed towards uh, Houndsditch. Hutt would later estimate it would have taken her around eight minutes of walking to reach Miter Square from
0: there. Every place sounds gross, except Fashion Street. (laughs)
1: After this, Eddowes was seen by the three men we previously discussed, and uh, that was the final sighting of her alive. So we'll talk about the public reaction to the brutal double event and the Ripper's final canonical murder after the break.
0: (sighs) The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore.
2: I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold
0: blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank
2: Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2, a new podcast from Crowd Network.
0: Welcome back, listener. In our chilling and blood-soaked first half, we took you to the night of September 30th, 1888, and Jack the Ripper's famed double event, when Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes met their hideous ends. And Caroline, this killer is not quite done yet.
1: Mm-hmm. So Whitechapel has been hit with four of the canonical five Jack the Ripper murders, with the killer apparently writing to the press for attention and absconding with pieces of his mutilated victims which without leaving much of a trace.
0: Uh, did he ever send Catherine Eddow's ear to the police?
2: I'll send it to the police so you know it's me, or whatever he said.
0: <laughs> we'll
1: get to that,
2: yeah. So Jackie? We're
1: about to. On October 1st, when newspapers published the Dear Boss letter, another writing alleged to be from the killer was also received postmarked that same day this mail was a postcard simply addressed to the central news office. Want to give this one a read, Sean?
0: A postcard? What did it have on the front? The Empire State Building? <laughs> Pikachu?
1: Uh, I think it was just a cheap postcard.
2: I was not caught dear old boss when I gave you the tip. You'll hear about Saucy Jackie's work tomorrow. Double event this time. Number one squealed a bit. Couldn't finish straight off. Had not time to get ears off for police. Thanks for keeping last letter back. Till me got to work again.
1: Till I got to work again. <laughs> Signed,
2: Jack da Ripper.
1: Yeah. So this letter is once again written in red ink and seems to have red smears all over it and uh, the postcard that appear to be blood. The writer refers to the double event, as well as how part of Eddowes' ear had been found detached at the crime scene, but apparently he wasn't able to leave with it. This letter would come to be known as the Saucy Jackie postcard. Some speculate on whether this could have been a hoax letter, as the details of Eddowes' death would have been known by locals and journalists even by October 1st, when the card was postmarked. Uh, But the Saucy Jackie Jackie postcard was also published in the papers with a request for anyone recognizing the handwriting to contact police. On October 6th, another postcard was possibly found on the ground between Princess Road and Selhurst Railway Station in Surrey.
0: You know, just where you put stuff, you want police (laughs) to get it. Uh,
1: all I really know for sure is that it was eventually received by the Central News Agency and is believed to have been intended for either Israel Schwartz or Joseph Lewendy, both of whom, as we mentioned, were possible witnesses to the Ripper who gave descriptions of the man they saw to police. Though the police asked the paper not to publish this one, few researchers believe uh, it really is by the killer, but we'll, we'll read it anyway because it's interesting.
2: Did the
0: papers publish?
1: No. This one was not published, but we do have record of it.
2: You thought yourself very clever, I reckon, when you informed the police. But you made a mistake if you thought I didn't see you. Now I know you know me, and I see your little game, and I mean to finish you and send your years to your wife if you show this to the police or help them. If you do, I will finish you. It no use your trying to get out of my way, because I have you when you don't expect it and I keep my word as soon you see and rip you up. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. P.S. You see, I know your address.
1: Apparently he didn't because it was either found on the ground or at the newspaper. I don't know.
0: Also, uh, just reading, it doesn't feel like the same. If the first two had a common style, I don't think this is in it. I felt like I was reading much longer sentences here.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is a little, I I mean, I don't know. There, There are spelling errors and stuff. An interesting element of this particular letter is that it's also written in red ink, and the handwriting is very similar to that of the Dear Boss letter, but... Yeah, it does feel kind of like a a poser letter, like, oh, I got to mention the ears again and that kind of thing.
0: Uh, There are researchers who dismiss all of these letters, right? Yes.
1: And I'll talk about that more probably in the suspects episode, just because that makes sense to me. Um, But yeah, some people think that Jack the Ripper never wrote to the police and it was just a, a complete hoax. But that's where we got the name either way. So the public at this point are seeing at least some of these letters. They're freaking out. The case is getting widespread publicity. And then a third letter comes in. On October 16th, Vigilance Committee head George Lusk received a letter addressed from hell, a.k.a. the aptly named From Hell Letter. The letter was postmarked the day before, October 15th. So let's hear the contents, Sean.
2: From hell. Mr. Lusk saw... I think it's supposed to be sir? Sir, probably. (laughs) S-O-R. I send you half the kidney I took from one woman, preserved it for you, tut a piece of fried, and ate it. It was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife. It took it out, if only you wait a while longer. Signed. Catch me when you can, Mr. Lushk. And the spelling errors in this one are wild. Yes. It's much
1: worse spelling, uh, much it, more run on y kind of. It's like writing. The, the
0: snowman uh, with the. Uh, uh, um, what's his name? Uh, Harry Hole. Yeah, with Harry Hole. Yeah, Mr. Lord. Policeman. I know the clues. Yes. So again, we
1: have the red ink and red splotches and similar handwriting. Oh, and the letter came with half a kidney. Oh. Which the writer had claimed was from a human female victim.
2: You think of uh, Big Lebowski. I can get you a toe, dude.
1: (laughs) I can get you a kidney. Even so, uh, maybe not recognizing that this was a human organ, Lusk dismissed the letter as a hoax and simply threw it and the kidney into a drawer.
0: Not the trash? Like an old
1: post-it. Yeah. He told his friends about it and they were like, uh, George, what the actual fuck?
0: Yeah, we'll fry that thing up with some onions well, at least. No.
1: But he eventually gave it over to Dr. Openshaw at London Hospital, who concluded that the kidney was indeed human and had been preserved in spirits of wine.
0: It's already marinated, we've gotta fry it up now.
1: <laughs> the letter itself made its way to the City of London police and later transferred to the Metropolitan Police. As to the kidney, it was impossible to tell the sex of the person that the kidney belonged to, at the time, anyway, but many medical and law professionals thought it was likely a hoax perpetrated by a medical student.
0: Um, Do they typically preserve their kidneys in wine
1: in medical college? Maybe alcohol, but I don't think wine. (laughs) Unfortunately, along with the saucy Jackie postcard, the From Hell letter and kidney have either been lost or stolen from the evidence vaults since the crime. The original photograph of the From Hell letter also disappeared, though thankfully a copy remains. Maybe it's cover-up?
0: Uh, maybe it's been 110 years. <laughs> yes. Sorry, 130?
1: 30-something, yeah. Now, it can't be emphasized enough that hundreds of letters claiming to be from the killer were received by the media and law enforcement during the time of the Ripper murders. However, it's the three main ones, Dear Boss, Saucy Jackie, and From Hell, that many researchers claim could very well be from the real man and not just a hoaxer. We'll discuss later who else could have sent them when we talk about suspects, but for now we have many in the public absolutely insane with fear thanks to the pairing of the murders with the mocking and creepy letters. At the end of October, police surgeon Thomas Bond was asked to give his opinion on the extent of the murderer's surgical skill and knowledge. The opinion offered by Bond on the character of the Whitechapel murderer is the earliest surviving offender profile, and therefore a real true crime relic. Bond's assessment was based on his own examination of the most extensively mutilated victim and the post-mortem notes from the four previous canonical murders.
0: Do you mean the earliest surviving offender profile on this murder or offender profile,
2: period? Period. That's cool.
0: Mm-hmm. He wrote,
2: All five murders, no doubt, were committed by the same hand. <laughs> In the first four, the throats appear to have been cut from left to right. In the last case, owing to the extensive mutilation, it is impossible to say in what direction the fatal cut was made. But arterial blood was found on the wall in splashes close to where the woman's head must have been lying.
1: Okay, this might have been early November, just when he
2: wrote this. Keep All the circumstances surrounding the murders lead me to form the opinion that the woman must first have been lying down when murdered. And in every case, the throat was first cut.
1: Bond was opposed to the idea that the murder had any kind of si- the murderer had any kind of scientific or anatomical knowledge and stated in his opinion the killer must have quote periodical attacks of homicidal and erotic mania with the character of the mutilations possibly indicating satyri cetiri- which is basically hypersexuality, uh, an extremely frequent or sudden increase in sexual libido.
0: Now, well shot through with like 1800s pseudo psychology terms mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, that sounds remarkably like the profile of a modern serial killer to the point where I'm surprised that in like Mindhunter, those guys were still confused about it.
2: Like, <laughs> wait, he kills sexually? <laughs>
1: Well, they were still figuring it out, I guess. I mean, this was, this was like the first psychological profile of a serial killer. um, And he's just thrown things at the wall. So Bond also stated that the homicidal Bond also stated that
2: the homicidal impulse may have developed from a revengeful or brooding condition of the mind, or that religious mania may have been the original disease. But I do not think either hypothesis is likely.
1: So that was just, it's very interesting how he's kind of like, well, I considered this, but I don't think it's this. And I mean, it seems pretty clear to me that this is a sexually based serial killer. So well, he and th- was pretty spot on in that sense, unless we were both wrong.
0: <laughs> and at this time, this seems like it's a pretty like novel idea, right? Yeah.
1: The Ripper himself seemed to take a break after the double event, but not for long. A little over a month later, on November 9th, 1888, he would strike again for the last of the canonical five victims, and possibly for the last time. At 10.45 a.m. on the morning of November 9th, landlord John McCarthy sent his assistant Thomas Boyer to the apartment of Mary Kelly to collect her overdue rent of 29 shillings. Again, I have no idea what that conversion is. (laughs) Kelly had been renting the room at 13 Miller's Court off Dorset Street in Spitalfields uh, in Whitechapel for the last eight months, but was behind six weeks on the rent.
0: Um, is it too early to uh, point out this is this is where Marianne Kelly comes back in? The-
1: yes. So um, the alias provided by Catherine Eddowes mm-hmm. when she was arrested was mary ann kelly this is mary jane kelly i believe but it's fucking weird that she gave the same name we don't know if they knew each other they could have it could have just been a common name to give as an alias but it's a weird coincidence in this case and there's a lot that is talked about
0: about it yeah certainly mary and kelly are both very common names now and then right but you know
1: paired paired together it's it's a pretty wild coincidence if it is one
0: because it's a woman in the same living in the same neighborhood who would be murdered a month later by the same person
1: yeah it's wild boyer knocked on the door but upon hearing no response he peeked into the apartment window and was treated to an absolutely horrific sight
0: um i will say you can see a fo- one of the earliest crime scene photographs that exists is the photograph of Mary Kelly's body. I'm not saying I recommend looking at it.
1: I do not recommend it. It is as gory as anything you would see in the worst horror movies nowadays. I mean, it's truly, truly horrific.
0: It is a photograph of what Caroline is about to describe. So yes, don't look it up unless that's something you want to look at.
1: And in which case... um, Get help. uh, We have a better help coupon in our episode description um, you know I mean I I saw it because I was researching this I don't I don't suggest seeking it out but inside the flat Boyer saw two lumps of flesh laying on the bedside table and beside it on the bed a body butchered beyond recognition. Boyer immediately went to fetch McCarthy who looked into the window as well. McCarthy later stated, The sight we saw, I cannot drive away from my mind. It looked more like the work of a devil than of a man. I declare to God I'd never expected to see such a sight as this. I hope I may never see such a sight again. Very intense. Good dialogue. Mm. McCarthy sent Boyer to Commercial Street Police Station to fetch law enforcement, and after closing up his shop, he went after him to the station as well. Boyer arrived at the station and stammered out the words, Another one. Jack the Ripper. Awful. John McCarthy sent me. So he's like traumatized already. Inspectors Walter Dew and Walter Beck soon followed Boyer back to the apartment and upon arriving at Miller's court, found that they could not open the door to Kelly's room. Inspector Beck moved to the window to try to get in that way and almost instantly staggered back at the sight he saw through the glass. For God's sake, do, he cried. Don't look. Wow. Which is a very sweet thing to think to tell your partner. Don't look. Tried to spare him the trauma. Dew did look, however, and he recounted the sight in his memoirs 50 years later.
2: As my thoughts go back to Miller's court and what happened there, the old nausea, indignation, and horror still overwhelm me. My mental picture of it remains as shockingly clear as though it were yesterday. No savage could have been more barbaric. No wild animal could have done anything so horrifying.
1: Mary Kelly's body lay on the bed, her head turned towards the window. Her face had been mutilated beyond recognition, and one feature in particular struck Inspector Dew.
2: Quote, The poor woman's eyes. They were wide open, and they seemed to be staring straight at me with a look of terror.
1: Our old friend, Divisional Police Surgeon George Bagster Phillips.
2: Oh, Bags is back.
1: mm -hmm, He arrived on the scene at 11.15 a.m. Inspector Aberline arrived around 11.30.
0: Now, Inspector Aberline will get his starring turn next week, right?
1: Yeah, we're going to talk about him more when we talk about the suspects. But he's the guy that Scotland Yard sent to kind of head the Metropolitan Investigation. It would be another two hours before anyone entered the tiny room due to a mistaken belief that bloodhounds were being sent to the scene to be put on the scent of the killer.
0: But they just weren't coming?
1: Yeah, they were out of town. (laughs) But there was, you know, a bit of a mix-up. So, after that goof, the door was forced open at 1.30 p.m., and the officers were subject to the awful sight of what had been done to Mary Kelly. Dr. Thomas Bond eventually detailed Kelly's injuries in his postmortem report, the most extensive report from the whole group investigation. The description, which Sean will state for us, is long and graphic, so please skip ahead a couple minutes or so if that's too much to handle.
0: Oh, I'm reading this?
1: Yep. Okay. Uh, try to be respectful about it, Sean.
0: No silly accent. Mm. The body was lying naked in the middle of the bed, the shoulders flat but the axis of the body inclined to the left side of the bed. The head was turned on the left cheek. The left arm was close to the body, with the forearm flexed at a right angle and lying across the abdomen. The right arm was slightly abducted from the body and rested on the mattress, the elbow bent and the forearm supine with the fingers clenched. The legs were wide apart, the left thigh at right angles to the trunk and the right forming an obtuse angle with the pubis. The whole of the surface of the abdomen and thighs was removed, and the abdominal cavity emptied of its viscera. The breasts were cut off, the arms mutilated by several jagged wounds, and the face hacked beyond recognition of the features. The tissues of the neck were severed all round down to the bone. The viscera were found in various parts, viz., The uterus and kidneys with one breast under the head, the other breast by the right foot, the liver between the feet, the intestines by the right side and spleen by the left side of the body. The flaps removed from the abdomen and thighs were on a table. The bed clothing at the right corner was saturated with blood, and on the floor beneath was a pool of blood covering about two feet square. The face was gashed in all directions, the nose, cheeks, eyebrows, and ears being partly removed. The lips were blanched and cut by several incisions, running obliquely down to the chin. There were, almost, there were also numerous cuts, extending irregularly all across the features. The neck was cut through the skin and other tissues right down to the vertebrae, the fifth and sixth being deeply notched. The skin cuts in the front of the neck showed distinct ecchymosis. I'm not sure what ecchymosis is. Mm. The air passage was cut at the lower part of the larynx through the crecoid cartilage. Both breasts were more or less removed by circular incisions, the muscle down to the ribs being attached to the breasts. The intercostals between the fourth, fifth, and sixth ribs were cut through and the contents of the thorax visible through the openings. The skin and tissues of the abdomen from the coastal arch to the pubis were removed in three large flaps. The right thigh was denuded in front to the bone, the flap of skin, including the external organs of generation, and part of the right buttock. The left thigh was stripped of skin fascia and muscles as far as the knee. The left calf showed a long gash through skin and tissues to the deep muscles and reaching from the knee to five inches above the ankle. Both arms and forearms had extensive, jagged wounds. The right thumb showed a small, superficial incision about one inch long with extra vassation of blood in the skin, and there were several more abrasions on the back of the hand, moreover, showing the same condition.
1: So maybe defensive wounds? I don't know.
0: Uh... Could be. Right thumb, small, cut, an inch long, uh, and abrasions on the back of the hand. I mean, how do you get, maybe if you're trying to punch, I guess.
1: Or just block yourself.
0: On opening the thorax, it was found that the right lung was minimally adherent by old firm adhesions. The lower part of the lung was broken and torn away. The left lung was intact. It was adherent at the apex, and there were a few adhesions over the side. In the substances of the lung, there were several nodules of consolidation. The pericardium was open below and the heart absent. In the abdominal cavity, there was some partially digested food of fish and potatoes, and similar food was found in the remains of the stomach attached to the intestines. Um, the heart is the only organ that's missing here, or did he take her vagina with there
1: him? There are other things missing. Um... So hard to tell because he really he took things out, he put things in other places. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to tell with with what has been done to the body. So you know we're going through this whole thing because I really wanted to emphasize
0: the escalation,
1: the escalation, and also. Um, the arrangement of the body, the things done to it, you know, it's really due to the amount of time he must
0: have had. Careful placement like some like something's between her feet, something's to, to her left side, yeah, her she right has side.
1: one of her breasts is like a pillow. I mean it's it's her, it's horrible. In his assessment, Dr. Bond also stated that the knife used was about one inch wide and six inches long, and he still did not believe the murderer had any medical training or knowledge. Quote, in each case, the mutilation was inflicted by a person who had no scientific nor anatomical knowledge. In my opinion, he does not even possess the technical knowledge of a butcher or horse slaughterer or a person accustomed to cut up dead animals.
0: That's interesting. So he thought this guy was looking around for stuff that he didn't necessarily know where to find.
1: Mm hmm. Multiple ashes found within the fireplace at 13 Miller's Court suggested Mary Kelly's murderer had burned several combustible items over time to illuminate the room as he mutilated her body, including a candle and some of her clothing. So he's, he's a- like, <laughs> actively trying to light this place while he's doing it, and like finding other things to burn so he could keep going.
0: It's Are you reminded of uh, the man from the train at all?
1: A little bit, yeah. And that's our axe murder series for anyone who uh, hasn't heard that yet. News of the discovery of another Ripper victim spread rapidly throughout the East End. Crowds estimated to number over a thousand gathered at each end of Dorset Street. As we mentioned, two official crime scene photos were taken. The only crime scene photos from a Ripper killing and Kelly's body was taken to the mortuary. It was officially identified as being Mary Kelly by her estranged boyfriend, Joseph Barnett, who was only able to recognize the brutally mutilated body by her ear and eyes.
0: Ear, singular
1: even. Yeah. And McCarthy, the landlord, also identified the corpse as being Mary Kelly.
0: Do you think you know my ears well enough to identify me by?
1: No. Sorry. Okay. (laughs) You'd have better chance with me because at least I have earrings. I don't know. Ears
0: are ears. My eyes would get it done though. For sure.
1: Mary Jane Kelly was 25 years old at the time of her death, and along with her youth compared to the other Canonical Five victims, she also stood out as being the only one who had her own home, and hence the only one who was killed indoors. The Daily Telegraph described her as being of fair complexion. Really? mm -hmm, With light hair and possessing rather attractive features. Most people said she was pretty. She had married at age 16 to a coal miner who died two or three years later in a mining explosion.
0: Do we have any photos of her not all cut up?
1: I don't believe so because this is so early on and the photography was expensive. So if you're working as a sex worker, you probably don't have the money to sit for a photo. Once her husband died, she ro- relocated to Cardiff and it's here where it's commonly thought that Kelly began to use sex work as a way to earn a living. She relocated to London in 1884 and became acquainted with fish porter Joseph Barnett in 1886. They decided to move in together, uh, eventually relocating to Miller's Court around February or March 1888.
0: A fish porter, so his job was just moving fish back and forth? I guess.
1: (laughs) At some point, Mary Kelly lost her door key to the apartment, and so she started to resort to bolting and unbolting the door from outside. Uh, And she would like kind of put a hand through this broken pane on the window to open it from the inside. So that's why it was locked.
0: Like she's Michael Myers breaking into her own home?
1: Yeah. And we have to remember they were not able to get in. The the police were not able to get in. So it was locked, but it could have been easily locked by the killer in the same way. It's not like an Edgar Allan Poe, how did the
0: killer leave type of thing. Right. On his way out, he just did the same thing in reverse. Probably. Yeah.
1: Barnett lost his employment in July 1888, reportedly due to committing theft, and Kelly once again resorted to prostitution as a way to earn money. Barnett stated at this time she also began to allow other sex workers to sleep in the room, as she didn't have the heart to refuse them shelter. Initially, Barnett tolerated this until a fight where they argued over her inviting a prostitute named Julia to stay happened they, they hadn't i guess you know the last straw
0: he's like
2: enough you keep trying to make me have three ways i won't do it
1: after this fight barnett basically moved out taking new lodgings in Bishopsgate. however he still visited kelly on an almost daily basis and occasionally gave her money
0: sure sharing those fat fish porter checks
1: well whenever he had work anyway He visited her the last time between 7 and 8 p.m. on November 8th, the day before her body was found. At the time, she was entertaining a friend at the home, uh, one Maria Harvey. They were also visited by another friend at some point, believed to be one Lizzie Albrook. Barnett apologized when he visited that he did not have money to give her at this time. He was still out of work. Both Harvey and Barnett left the apartment at the same time. Presumably, with Albrook leaving as well, it's a little foggy. And Barnett was back at his lodging house soon after, playing whist with other lodgers until 12:30 a.m. when he retired to bed.
0: Whist was like the card game of the 1800s. Like okay. in the Old West, people weren't really um, playing poker, like you imagine. They were usually mm-hmm. playing whist or faro. Anyway, well, that's what he was doing.
1: Around midnight on November 9th, Kelly's upstairs neighbor Ann Cox saw Mary going into her room with a man. She bade Mary goodnight, but apparently Mary was so drunk she could barely manage a mumbled response. At about 2 a.m., a man named George Hutchinson saw Mary on Commercial Street. Or at least he said he did. She asked him for sixpence, but he replied that he had no money. Saying she needed to find money, she kept walking, whereupon Hutchinson saw a man coming from the opposite direction tap her on the shoulder and say something to her. Couldn't hear what it was. The pair laughed, and the man put his arm around Mary's shoulder, leading her past Hutchinson and toward Dorset Street.
2: Oh, you'd say anything but your <laughs> prayers.
1: It's like his classic pickup line. Hutchinson followed and watched as the pair disappeared into Miller's court. All
2: right, well,
0: that's weird.
1: Even weirder, he waited 45 minutes for them to reemerge, but left when they didn't.
0: What did so? If he thought a murder was going on, he I should have prevented if, this whole thing. Mm- and if he didn't think a murder was going on, this is strange.
1: He's a creeper. Maybe he thought she was a sex worker. She had picked up a John, and maybe uh, he thought he could peep on them or something. I don't know. Anyway, a little before 4 a.m., two neighbors of Kelly claimed that they heard a faint cry of, oh, murder. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, really. However, cries of murder were pretty regular in the area. Does it really say that? Yes. And uh, often meant that a drunken fight or domestic violence was occurring. It was something that was just often yelled
0: during a brawl. You know, they do say uh, if you are being murdered, you shouldn't yell murder or help, but fire.
1: Well, I, I think this is, if you're in a fight, you yell murder. It's like the same idea. But if you're in
0: a, if you're, you if know, you're if you,
1: being murdered, you yell
0: fire. Though. Yeah, because people will actually come to see the fire.
1: Yeah, because at this point, the neighbors decided not to get involved and ignored the cry. There's no way to know if this is when Mary Jane Kelly was killed, but it could be. Thanks to the privacy of Kelly's room, the Ripper had more leisure time to work on her murder than ever before, which prompted the, as we mentioned, extensive mutilation done to Kelly's body. I mean, he probably had hours in there uh, without anyone, without having to worry about anyone walking in.
0: Yeah, he only had 10 minutes with Edos, and he did a little face painting with a knife.
1: So it's with Mary Kelly's death that many think the true Jack the Ripper murder spree came to an end. Perhaps he was finally satiated with his worst mutilation of all, the ultimate expression of his depravity.
0: Can you think of a single serial killer for whom that is the way that it works? Yeah, they just
1: stop. Um, Not really. Maybe the Golden Golden State. State killer, but he was eventually found. Uh, However, there are a few other murders after this Canonical Five period that some think may be related to the Ripper killings. One was Rose Milet, found dead on December 20th, 1888, in Clark's yard. Milet had been strangled and was not mutilated. And the police at the time believed that she had either accidentally hanged herself with her collar while in a drunken stupor, or she committed suicide. However, faint markings left by a cord on one side of her neck suggested Milet had been strangled. And uh, during the inquest into Milet's death, the jury returned a verdict of murder.
0: With no killer?
1: Yeah, I guess so. The newspapers feverishly speculated on if she was a ripper victim.
0: But no throat slash, no ripping? It seems unlikely
1: to me, Yeah. Shortly after midnight on July 17th, 1889, Alice McKenzie was murdered in Castle Alley Whitechapel by two stab wounds to the neck and a severing of the left corroded artery. Closer. Interestingly, the aforementioned Dr. Thomas Bond did believe McKenzie to be a ripper victim, while George Bagster Phillips disagreed.
0: Well, you got to know I'm with bags on this one. No, that could I have don't know, been, the two stab
1: wounds to the neck and severing the artery, I mean...
0: It would be if he was interrupted like with yeah. Elizabeth Stride, right?
1: Yeah. A decomposing headless and legless torso of an unknown woman, referred to as the Pynchon Street Torso, was discovered underneath a railway arch in Pynchon Street Whitechapel on September 10th, 1889.
0: And by the way, I think Pynchon Street Torsos really fell off with their second album and I just had to say it.
1: Yeah, but they're a really good ska band, right?
0: It's hardcore. Come on.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Bruising about the victim's back, hip, and arm indicated that she had been extensively beaten shortly before her death. The victim's abdomen was also extensively mutilated, although her genitals had not been wounded, unlike with several of the Ripper victims. She appeared to have been killed approximately one day prior to the discovery of her torso. The dismembered sections of the body are believed to have been transported to the railway arch, hidden under an old chemise, which is like a piece of clothing. So the killing is not likely to have occurred in the same
0: space. And my problems here are, like, she was dismembered, but she wasn't She she wasn't ripped. Yeah. And um, then she was moved, which wasn't done with any of the Ripper victims. Mm-hmm.
1: Lastly, of the most intriguing additional murders, on February 13, 1891, a 25-year-old sex worker named Frances Coles was found lying underneath a railway arch at Swallow Gardens Whitechapel, which is a tough name for a sex worker uh, where she's operating. She had suffered a deep gash to the throat. She had not been mutilated. Remarkably, when she was found, Coles was still alive, but she died before medical help could arrive. A 53 year old stoker, James Thomas Sadler, had earlier been seen drinking with Coles, and the two were known to have argued approximately three hours before her eventual death. Sadler was arrested by the police and charged with her murder, and was briefly thought to be the Ripper, but was later discharged from court for lack of evidence in early March we don't really know whether these four victims were additional casualties of Jack the Ripper. Mostly, it's thought that whoever Jack the Ripper was after the murder of Mary Kelly, he had either died, been incarcerated, or sent to a mental hospital, uh, emigrated from the area, or, as we mentioned least likely, decided to just quit the whole killing game. This was even a, a contemporary belief. In 1894, Sir Melville McNaughton, Assistant Chief Constable of the Metropolitan Police Service and head of the Criminal Investigation Department wrote a report that stated the Whitechapel murderer had five victims and five victims only. Some argue that only three cases can be definitely linked to the same perpetrator, the murders of Mary Nichols, Annie Chapman and Catherine Eddowes, while the murders of Elizabeth Stride and Mary Kelly may not have been. Because the
0: Ripper was never
1: caught, no one will ever really know.
0: I don't know why you would eliminate Mary Kelly from that.
1: Yeah, maybe. I mean, you know, she's younger. uh, She has her own place. Anything that sets people apart from the usual victims, you know, there's always a possibility that they're not part of the same spree. But I think she was.
0: I get it with Elizabeth Stride because she wasn't ripped. But we assume that's because he was interrupted. And that's why he, he went and killed Catherine Eddowes. Uh, Mary Kelly seems like the obvious, the obvious escalation Mm -hmm. of the, aren't some of the same specific things done, like cutting up the face under the eyes, Mm -hmm. um, ripping out the internal organs out of the gut.
1: Yes. I think at the very least, these five women were killed by the same person. Now, whether I change my mind when we dive deeper into the suspects, I don't know, but that's what I think. There might be more, but I think these five were the same guy. In the immediate aftermath of the murders, uh, Inspector Walter Dew wrote in his memoirs, Jack the Ripper became the children's boogeyman. Depictions of the Ripper in popular culture ranged from paranormal and eerie in the 20s and 30s to a symbol of predatory aristocracy in a gentleman's top hat in the 1960s.
2: Gentleman Jack.
1: Yeah, this is when they really started doing the Gentleman Jack thing. The 100-year anniversary of the killings in 1988 spurred on a ton of Ripper-related media, including hundreds of works of fiction like Alan Moore's graphic novel From Hell— the establishment of the ripperology subgenre of true crime research.
0: Yeah, let's let's start it up uh, exactly 100 years after the crime <laughs> was committed. We'll, we'll really get somewhere.
1: Yeah, it was, I mean, ripperology was at least around in the 70s, but, you know, kind of came to the forefront at this point.
0: Because it was in the 70s that the book was written that From Hell kind of takes its cues from. We'll get into it in two weeks.
1: Yes. Uh, there were ripper-related periodicals, And we've also gotten plays, musicals, and operas based on the murders, including my favorite show of all time, Sweeney Todd, which apparently was influenced by 1974's Jack the Ripper, the musical.
2: At last, (laughs) my right arm is complete again!
1: We previously talked about the many Ripper films out there, including Time After Time in 1979, the TV miniseries Jack the Ripper starring Michael Caine as Frederick Aberline in 1988, The From Hell adaptation in 2001, the TV series Ripper Street, which was set just after the Whitechapel murders, and there's been more, though interestingly, there's never really been a definitive telling of the story on the silver screen.
0: You mean like a historical one?
1: Or a good one. (laughs) (laughs) Though, you know, again, Time After Time is great, but it's very fictional, and um, the Jack Thurbermine series is good, but it, it takes one theory and really goes with it, so... There are also some video games featuring the case or the character of Jack the Ripper, including Sherlock Holmes versus Jack the Ripper, Assassin's Creed three, the order 1886 and dance of death, do and Fay. There's even uh, been plenty of music inspired by the crimes, certainly some metal bands, including the song respite on the Spittlefields," released just this year by a band. We both quite like ghost and shockingly. There was even a professional baseball team in the Frontier League named after the killer in London, Ontario, Canada, the London Rippers. Oh,
2: Jesus.
1: Their logo, featuring the character Jack Diamond as their mascot, showed a cartoon figure wearing a top hat and black cape reminiscent of the appearance of Jack the Ripper in the popular imagination.
2: Jack Diamond.
1: The name and logo both drew major understandable criticism, and the team only remained the Rippers for the 2012 season, ceasing operations that July. And I think that might be the first sports team named after a serial killer.
0: That's true. We've had
1: cryptid swans, but uh, yeah, I can't think of, you know.
0: They changed it so much faster than all those ethnic slur teams.
1: There's no Washington Bundys or Wisconsin Dommers out there. Not yet. We'll discuss more about the investigation, spearheaded by Chief Inspector Frederick Aberline of Scotland Yard, and the long list of suspects, both likely and unlikely, next week on part three of our Jack the Ripper special series.
0: Yeah, and guys, uh, I know this feels like the end of a story, but really, next week is where the fun starts because people have been arguing fruitlessly about this for a hundred years and they've come up with so many dumb ideas
1: and we're gonna argue fruitlessly about it too but at least we'll try and pick our own favorite subject uh suspects you know
0: yeah 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 yeah. um again we already know that it was the crown and the masons but more on that in two weeks oh boy Been a while. Do they still take reservations here?
1: <laughs> researchers announced this week that the remains of a female vampire, quote unquote, have been unearthed by archaeologists at a cemetery in Pien, Poland. Okay. <laughs> the Polish researchers, led by Professor Darius Bolinski of the Nicholas Copernicus University in Turin, came across the remains in late August. The woman had been buried at the village graveyard with a sickle around her neck and a triangular padlock on her foot, which research team representative Magdalena Zagrodzka stated, quote, may have protected against the return of the deceased, which was probably feared. In this context, these practices can be considered so-called anti-vampiric.
0: Oh, yeah. Like in Eastern, we've talked about it, right? In Eastern Europe, you find a lot of medieval graves with uh, garlic <laughs> stuffed in the mouths, heads cut off. Sure.
1: The sickle was placed on the body with the blade on the neck with the belief that it would be kind of a booby trap. Uh, the head would be severed if the deceased had like tried to rise again.
0: Like it would sit up through the yes. s- sickle.
1: Mm-hmm. Zagrodzka also stated that the remains had a silk headdress woven with gold or silver thread, indicating that the deceased was a person with high social status.
0: Or they just believed vampires couldn't take silver. <laughs> Maybe.
1: The practice of burying the body in this way became common in Poland throughout the 17th century as a response to a feared vampire epidemic. At this time, along with these measures, some corpses would be burned, smashed with stones, or have their heads and legs cut off. Team leader Polinski told CBS News that the find had left him speechless, saying, Such a discovery, especially here in Poland, is astonishing, especially now, centuries later. Pure astonishment. Further research of the cemetery is planned, and researchers from the Institute of Archaeology at the University of Krakow will conduct DNA testing on the remains to learn more about the deceased woman. This is not the first such discovery in the country. Archaeologists led by Leslie Gregorica of the University of South Alabama in the U.S. found six so-called vampire skeletons buried similarly at a cemetery in northwest Poland in 2014.
0: All right. You guys wake me up when you find one that's hissing at you.
1: Oh, boy. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Scary, And check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. You can also call us and leave a message at our Google voice number, 203-666-5529. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and also now on Spotify. We'll be forever grateful.
0: Yep, we sure will. And special thanks to our beloved top-tier patrons already joining us over there on Patreon. Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, and Ira. We love you guys. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle, if you're so inclined, at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb.
1: Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media.
2: Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth. Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.